lead you. You may be seated. Thank you. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever, forever. Glory forever. Forever and ever. Forever and ever. Forever and ever. Amen. Amen. It's my, it's my earliest memory. Have you thought, ever thought back and tried to figure out what, what's your earliest memory? Not one that you've seen in pictures or stories that you've heard, but genuinely the thing from your past that's the very first thing that you can remember. For me, I was five years old. It was my birthday, and I had been given a big wheel for my birthday. Anybody have a big wheel growing up? I mean, just epic, right? Huge wheel in the front, too many wheels in the back, and I was in love. I was in love. I begged my parents to take it on an inaugural spin around the block. I was already ready for my birthday party. I was dressed in a red and white shirt that had horizontal stripes on it. I had red shorts on it, and on the left pocket, there was a little green alligator. Who's with me? Who's with me? I begged my parents mercilessly, I now know where my seven-year-old gets it from. And they finally gave in. And so I took my big wheel, red and, or, red and yellow big wheel, on a spin around the block. I went tearing out of the driveway, made a left-hand turn, made another left-hand turn, another left, another left, and I was about to make my final left-hand turn on the final home stretch, and I'm not exactly sure what happened. Other than, I think the tire on the back, the little wheel on the back, got caught in the groove that was attaching the curb to the sidewalk, and the next thing I knew, I was lying on my face in the gutter, covered in mud. And I can remember getting back on my big wheel and making that final left-hand turn and heading home. And I pulled up the driveway, and I put the big wheel off to the side, and I stood there, not exactly sure what was going to greet me when I knocked on the door. It was the first time in my life I can remember feeling shame. It was the first time in my life I can remember failing. The first time in my life where, regardless of anybody else's standard for me, where I didn't live up to my standard for myself. You remember the first time you felt that way? It's part of the struggle we have being human. It's that regardless of whose standard we compare ourselves to, even if it's our own, we fall short of it. I'm always amused by people and befuddled by people who uh, assume that they're going to heaven because they're good people. Maybe they're way better than me, but I just know that even by my own standard, let's take God out of the equation for a second, even with my own standard, I fail to meet it time and time again, day after day after day. 
And there's something on the very sort of DNA level of us as people, isn't there, that we have this like internal way of measuring and keeping track and remembering when we just don't live up to our standards, don't we? I mean, the first thing I have on mind that I can remember from growing up is the big wheel. Standing there in the front of my house, covered in mud, knowing that I'd failed. But if we go back, and we don't have to look too far, do we? We don't have to look too far into the past to have our own list going. And maybe it's, maybe it's lies that we've told, or let's just call them partial truths, right? Because we're Christians here, so... Um, and I can tell you if your halo's on a little tight this morning, so that's all right. So partial truths, or, or maybe it's, you know, um, that, that we've cheated at times uh, on, on things, or maybe it's just these internal rhythms of our heart where uh, we have evil thoughts or evil desires, and we have things that go on inside of our minds and our hearts that we wish we could take back. And all of us know, with, in regards to this list, that it is impossible to hit rewind, isn't it? It's impossible to hit rewind. Hey, some of us, some, of, some people in the room, are, uh, they wish, wish that they could. Um, maybe there's some things that they did uh, in their marriage. That's not spelled right, but I wish I could take that back, and I can't. <laughs> can't. There's some things, some places we've been, some things that we've done. All of us, we have to deal with this list in some way, don't we? We have to. It's a human problem. It's not a, it's not a Christian problem. It's a human problem. How do we deal with not living up to the standards that even we set for ourselves? And I'm going to erase this because it's going to drive my wife crazy, okay? So um, she teaches English. She's like, Paulson, come on. You're killing me here. How do we deal with the list? How do we deal with the list? See, some of us, here's what we'll try to do. We'll try to ignore it, and we'll try to pretend that it's not there. And we can. We're really good at this for a time. But you and I all, we both have these moments where we lie in bed, and right before we fall asleep, we stare at the ceiling. And aren't there some nights where this list just comes up and pops up in your head? And you can try to ignore it. You can try to ignore the things that you've done that you know don't even live up to your standard. But we all know that ignoring it doesn't work. We've tried to rationalize it, a lot of us. So we could say, hey, listen, big wheel made that back right wheel a little bit too big. It's big wheel's fault, really, that I fell into the gutter. And if big wheel had made that wheel the right size, I never would have been in that predicament. And we can blame other people, can't we? We can find other things to blame people about. And the list goes on and on and on of the ways it's other people's fault that we didn't live up to the standard. But we all know, in those quiet moments, we all know that it's not somebody else's fault, it's ours. See, here's the other devastating thing that starts to happen, is this list starts to haunt us. See, this is a record that stands against us. It's a record that stands against us. And some of us, we have so thought about this list and we've tried to ignore it and we've tried to blame other people and that hasn't worked and we've just had to be stuck with the list. And so the list is not just something that we've done, it's something that we are. 
We call that shame. When we start to internalize the list and it just becomes a part of the tape that plays in our mind over and over every day. I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you made that decision. I can't believe you failed so bad, so terribly. And all of us have this to some degree and to some level. The other thing we try to do is we'll try to, and this is my method, I, I try to repair it. I'm going to try to make up for it, okay? So I'm never going to do that again. Have you ever had that conversation with yourself right before you do it again? <laughs> Just me? I'm never going to do that again. I'm not going to think that. I'm not going to say that. That is not who I am. And you know how I'm going to prove it? I'm going to prove it because from here on out, I am not going to be that guy. <laughs> and we all have the list, don't we? And we all have different things on the list. And sometimes the list is ours and we make it up. And sometimes the list is given to us. And for those who follow the way of Jesus, we've got a list of things that we're not supposed to do and people we're not supposed to be. And it just seems like the harder I try not to live on the list, the more I find myself writing more and more things down. And so, when Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he doesn't want to shrink back and away from the things that make us deeply human. He doesn't want us to pray about things that are just somewhere out there. He wants us to pray for the things that actually really matter, the things that are very present in the world and in our world. And so when he teaches his disciples to pray, he says, after saying, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, you're completely holy and distant and other, and yet you're loving and present and here, that's the tension of prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, make your name great. He then says, and God, there's stuff that we need. There's stuff that we need. So will you give us, God, graciously give us everything that we need today to survive. The very fundamental building blocks of human life. Give us food. Give us bread. And the next thing he does after the fundamental building blocks of physical life, he's going to invite us to pray for the fundamental building blocks of our spiritual life. Here's what he says. And forgive us our, what? Debts. The list. The, the failings. The shortcomings. That we didn't add up and we didn't make it even by our own standard. God, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our, what? Our debtors. So right after asking for the fundamental building blocks of physical life, Jesus invites us to ask for the things that will allow us to restore our humanity. That we would be forgiven. That the debt would be wiped clean. That the things that we are ashamed of would not translate into living lives of shame. That's what Jesus is inviting us to bring before the Father. There's a better way than just ignoring there's a better way than rationalizing. There's a better way than trying to forget it ever happened or we ever made that decision. And the better way, the way that takes the things that we're ashamed of and does not allow them to turn into shame is by bringing them before our God, our Father in heaven, and saying, I have messed up big time. Would you in your grace shower me 
with forgiveness. Dale Bruner, the great commentator, writes, food is humanity's priority need, but forgiveness is humanity's profoundest need. Profoundest need. So Jesus invites us to pray. Hey, talk to God about the list. Talk to God about the records that stand against you. And so if we are going to be people in prayer who ask for forgiveness, we're going to be people who need to unearth the things in our life that would potentially cause us to live in shame. And we're going to need to be people who bring those before the throne of God with confidence that he is a God who forgives and wipes the debt clean. Matthew chapter 18, will you turn there with me? If you have a Bible, if you don't, and you have a phone that has the Bible on it, will you swipe there with me? Because we're going to camp there for a few moments today. Jesus tells a story about this idea. He tells a parable in order to illustrate just how significant this issue is. And it's a story that you may have heard before if you've been a part of church. And so if, if you've heard the story and you go, listen, Paulson, I know the punchline. I know where this is going. Can I invite you to just hold off for a second, step back from it, try to wipe your memory clean from ever having heard this, and let's look at it fresh, with fresh eyes together, this parable of Jesus today. Here's what Jesus says. Or this is uh, Matthew writing about the words of Jesus. It says, and then Peter came to him, Jesus, and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Translation, my Peter, this is going to get crazy, God, if we do this over and over again. Like, we can't be people who just whenever somebody wrongs us, we forgive them. There's got to be a limit. Otherwise, we're just going to get run over. And for most rabbinic teachers of the day, they had a yoke, they had a teaching that said, you forgive somebody up to three times for something that they did wrong. And that was big. Three different times for the same offense. And Jesus says, hmm, as many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times times. And in order to illustrate that, he tells a story. There was, there, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Everybody say, wow. It's a lot of money. We'll talk about it in just a second. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one fellow, one of his fellow servants who owed him, him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay, repay you. Does this sound familiar to anyone? Okay. It should. He refused. And he went and he put him in prison until he should pay back the debt. 
And his fellow servants saw what had taken place. They were greatly distressed, and they went and reported it to their master, all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay back his debt. And so also, Jesus says, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Wow. Five characters. You have the king who's the ruler of the land, who signifies, personifies God in the parable. In the parable. You have the servant who owes the king a ton of money. You have the servant of the servant who owes his servant some money. You have people who are looking on, observing, and wondering how this is all going to play out. And then you have jailers. The parable starts with the king simply, it says, calling to account the money that's owe him. So this king is a wise business person. This king has a record. He has an account. He has a ledger. He's a good bookkeeper. He, uh, he knows who owes him and how much they owe him. And he says it's time to call to accounts and for people to pay up what they owe me. Now, this person, the servant who owes the king, owes him how many talents? 10,000 talents. Okay, now, 10,000 talents, one talent would equal 15 years of wages. One talent equals 15 years. 10,000 talents equals 150,000 years wages. That's a long time, is it not? Okay, so now let's just assume that this servant is making minimum wage, and let's assume that's $8 an hour for round figures, $8 an hour for the next 150,000 years. Here's how much debt is on the books. Two million, no, two billion, 250 million dollars. I feel like you should go million dollars, right? I mean, it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. This is like Donald Trump type of money here. And here's what the servant asks the king. Have pity on me. Literally in the Greek, it's be big-hearted towards me. Be big-hearted towards me. Have, have patience. Don't, don't call this all to account at one time. Have, have patience. So be big-hearted and have, have pity, which would mean like be moved in the very bowels of your soul with compassion towards me. That's what he wants. And at the core of his ask is, I just, I need more time. It's insanity, isn't it? I need more time. I need 150,000 years whereby I will work constantly and somehow acquire no debt that goes on top of that. It's a terrible ask, isn't it? It's a crazy ask. Because you can never work enough or earn enough or do enough, and that's the point 
of Jesus' parable. You can't earn enough. You can't do enough. You're not going to find any sort of magic ball or any DeLorean to make time go backwards. I'm sorry, friends, but we are essentially stuck with the record that stands against us. And most of us, what we ask God for, most of us, what we ask God for is, I just, I just need a little bit more time. Like, if I, could, if I could earn a little bit more, if I could do a little bit more, if I could be a little bit more, then I'd be okay. God says, no, 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 no. The king in this passage, you look at this passage, and what the king does is he does not acquiesce and say back to the servant, that's a great idea. Wonderful thinking. Let's do that. You work, and I will sit here, and I will keep track of how much you owe and how much you've earned, and let's do the bookkeeping thing forever. The king is so much better than that. The king says, okay, here's the deal. Here's the deal. We're not just eliminating the debt. We're changing the system. And the system is God is not in the bookkeeping business anymore. That's great news. That's wonderful news. He's not keeping track. Prove it to you. Some theological undergirding. Colossians chapter 2. Listen to the way that the Apostle Paul writes this to the church at Colossae. He says, and you were, what? Dead. Right, so you had so much stacked up against you. So much stacked up against you. There was no way you're digging yourself out of any of these holes individually or as a whole. Not going to happen. You were dead in your, trans, in, in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made you, what? Alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. How many? All. By canceling the, what? Record. By canceling the record. This word in the Greek, canceling, literally means to obliterate. <laughs> Love that. Because here's what the cross does. So, oh, $2.25 billion that you owe. God doesn't remember it anymore. Those, those, those thoughts of your heart that are so evil and so decrepit and so messed up, the things that you've done, the ways that you've lived. And he goes, listen, listen, listen. By the cross, it's not, it's not that I'm, I'm going to forget those. It's that I'm going to just erase them. I'm taking him down. He's canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set, or this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Friends, what the cross declares is that Jesus is no longer in the bookkeeping business. And if you go back through this parable, and you look at the way that this book or, or the, the ledger or the record starts to show up. When the king forgives the record, the, the wrongs, the failures that the servant had against him, I think what the servant actually hears is, I'm going to give you all the time you need. But what actually happens is the king says, it's erased, it's done for, I'm changing the entire system. And when this person, when the servant walks out of the king's chambers, he's still holding his ledger. He's still holding his book. 
He still thinks that there's still a debt that he has to pay, even though the king has clearly said, this is forgiven. It's over. And did you know the type of people who are able to offer this kind of forgiveness to others are only people who have heard from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, I'm not in the bookkeeping business anymore. I'm not in the business of keeping track of every little right and wrong. I'm in the business of canceling the records that stood against you. See, until we know that we stand as forgiven, we will never stand in the gap as forgivers. Until we know we stand as forgiven, we will never stand in the gap as forgivers. And until we know we are forgiven, we will run from the things that we've done that are wrong. We will try to justify our wrongs. We will internalize our wrongs. And we will end up living lives that are not defined by God's grace, but that are defined by our shame. This, friends, is a huge deal. Jesus wants to ask us this morning, are you still holding on to the records? Are you still keeping track of score? And we may say we're not, just like they say they're not when my son plays basketball. And then I was asked to keep score. I'm like, whoa, we're not, thought we weren't keeping score here. And they're like, oh no, we keep score. We just don't tell anybody. I'm like, oh, that's like church. It's like church. We keep track of the score. We just don't tell anybody. And hey, 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 most of the time, we keep track of our score and how much wrong we've done, even more than we keep track of everybody else's score, don't we? Because oftentimes the hardest person for us to forgive is the person that stares back at us in the mirror. And we wonder, what do we do with this shame? See, Jesus has some hints for us in the Lord's Prayer. He says, well, first, before you ever try to be the type of person that forgives, you need to know that you stand forgiven. Before he invites us to ask and to, to beckon, will help us forgive those who have debts against us. He says, listen, you need to know as a child of God that you stand before the throne of God, pure, holy, spotless, blameless. The debt has been canceled. $2.25 billion was in your account that you owed. And the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords has said, listen, I know you can't pay it and I'm not waiting for you to pay it. That's why I paid it on the cross with my own body, and with my own blood. And until you know you stand forgiven, you will never stand as a forgiver. But when you do, when you know, listen, I stand forgiven by the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the most natural thing then that starts to flow out of us is forgiveness. If God is not holding the record above my head, then how can I hold it above anybody else's? John Chrysostom, the great early church father and prolific preacher, said, if I receive forgiveness, or sorry, to ask forgiveness from God is a great benefit, and then to deny it the same to others is to mock God. So here's the thing. Will you look up at me for just a second? If I receive forgiveness from God, I Forfeit the right to not offer it to my fellow human beings. Okay, and there's no footnote there, you guys. 
That's the hard part about this. Unless they hurt you really deeply, unless they abuse you, unless they dehumanize you, unless whatever happens, happens, right? Because we all have those things, what ifs, what ifs, what ifs. No, there's no, there's no footnote there, you guys. There's no footnote. If I receive forgiveness from God, I forfeit the right to not offer it to my fellow human being. And see, Jesus at the end of this says, and should not, you have had mercy on your fellow servants as I have had mercy on you. You see, when we realize that we are freely forgiven, someone wants to tell you that. You need to realize that we're freely forgiven. We are freed then to forgive. When we realize we're freely forgiven, we are freely freed to forgive. You see, because here's the thing. I don't just have a record in my mind of what I've done, do I? Because you don't just have a record of what you've done and the wrongs that you've done. And see, some of you might, you may realize, okay, I've got $2.25 billion on that. But you recognize, just like I do, that there's people that have wronged you also. In fact, in the story, it tells us that this man owed his servant 100 denarii. That's 100 days wages. So using the same math that we used before, that would be a total of $4,000. Now, could he pay that back? Probably. Over time, he could probably have paid that back. And the man refuses. This is Jesus' point. The the climax of the story is this man forgiven of 10,000 talents is unwilling to forgive 100 denarii. And he goes, if you don't realize how much God has forgiven you, you're going to end up in the same spot. See, either we hold on to the books or we release the records. But we can't have it both ways. Here's the hard part about forgiveness. The hard part about forgiveness is that I need to look in the mirror and see this number before I'm willing to offer anybody else forgiveness. I have to look in the mirror with honesty before I look on anybody else with mercy. And the longer I ignore this and the longer I try to run away from it or justify it or rationalize it or hide it, the further I've come the further I find myself from actually genuinely forgiving the people that have wronged me. The second reason forgiveness is really, really difficult is because when I screw up, I want grace. But when somebody screws up towards me, I want judgment. Who's with me? This is the confounding part of being human. So much of the time, we are unwilling to offer what we long for in the deepest parts of our soul. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you exactly what you want. When you pray, forgive me, he says, I have by my body and my blood, and now I'm releasing you to be forgivers. And you know what? The only thing that keeps us out of the kingdom of heaven The only thing that keeps this servant out of the presence of the king is his unwillingness to let go of the books. 
his clinging to the books. You see, in the parable, you have this king who absorbs the wrong. You have the king who pays the debt, who says, this one's on me. It's absolutely forever gone. I'm changing the system. I'm not playing the record collecting game anymore. And he looks at his servant and goes, will you do the same? You see, the only thing that will keep me out of the presence of God is refusing the grace of God. The very thing that I need, the very thing that defines who I am as a person, the only thing that puts me in the jailer's torment is an unwillingness to say, I'm done with the bookkeeping business. The records are released. It's done for. It's gone. Which is what forgiveness means. It means to send away it means to release. And Jesus ends this parable with his statement, should you not have had mercy on your fellow servants as I have had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay back all of his debt. Jesus goes, if you want to play the record-keeping game, I guess I'll play it for, with you for all of eternity. But if you want to release the records, forgiveness is freely offered. It just requires that the, we would then in turn be audacious, ridiculous forgivers. So the question I have for you and for me is are we still holding on to the books? Because listen, I had some faces in my mind as I planned this message. I had some events in mind as I planned this message. And I just sensed God saying, Paulson, are you going to preach this and hold on, or are you going to preach it and release? And immediately when you found out that we were talking about forgiveness, you had some people in your mind too, I'm guessing. I'm guessing you had some events maybe that started to play back and you go, listen, every time we talk about this, this is the person that's on my mind and this is the event that happened and this is the abuse that I suffered and this is the wrong that was done to me. And God's asking us today collectively, will we be the type of people that recognize that the bookkeeping is over and will we release the wrongs that people have done to us in the same way that our failures have been covered by his grace, and our shame replaced by the name that he gives us. See, Robert Capone in his great book on the parables says, if we refuse to die, in particular, if we insist on binding others' debts upon them in the name of our own right to life, we will, by not letting grace have its way through us, cut ourselves off from ever knowing the joy of grace in us. Oh. What might it look like to become the type of people who receive forgiveness and then freely give it? Friends, look up at me for a second. This is the gospel. You stand freely forgiven and therefore freed to forgive. It's the only thing that can actually motivate the human soul to say to the perpetrators of the deepest wrongs that we've experienced, I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. 
Here's what I've run into as a pastor, that I talk to a lot of people, and they go, well, I could never forgive this person and that person. And then when they start to describe forgiveness, I go, well, that's not forgiveness at all. What you, what you want to do isn't what you're describing and what you're talking about. So here's what I wanted to do. For the next um, seven minutes, what I'd like to do is switch into teacher mode and answer the question, what is forgiveness? And what isn't forgiveness? And I want, my hope, my prayer is that in defining this oh-so-important word, God might free us to live the kind of lives that he purchased for us on Calvary's Hill. That would be great, wouldn't it? Amen. Okay, two of you are with me. Awesome. Both of you must need to hear this. So do I. Here's what forgiveness is not. And I think it's important we define what forgiveness is not before we jump into what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not ignoring or overlooking the wrong. Forgiveness is not saying, I see that, but I'm going to choose to look the other way and pretend like it didn't exist. In fact, genuine forgiveness requires and demands just the opposite. Just the opposite. In his great book, Exclusion and Embrace, Miroslav Volf writes about this, that, that genuine forgiveness demands that we name the wrong that was done against us. We cannot forgive if we are not first willing to condemn. So in order to forgive, we must say, that was wrong. Otherwise, there's nothing to forgive, is there? See, we can play this nice game of platitudes and, and, and nice little um, sentiments and talk about forgiveness, but unless we're willing to say that was wrong, we never have anything to forgive. So forgiveness does not mean that we look the other way, and it does not mean that we ignore the wrong that was done. Second thing it doesn't mean, it does not mean that we forget the wrong. Can I tell you, I meet with so many people and they go, well, I could never forget what so-and-so did to me. And so therefore, I can't forgive. And here's the thing. The enemy loves, 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 loves that you think you have to forget in order to forgive. Because you can choose to forgive and still remember what happened. And you probably will. But it does not mean, it's a non sequitur to say, well, I can't forget, therefore I can't forgive. Those two things never have to intersect. They never have to intersect. So forgiveness does not mean overlooking the wrong or ignoring the wrong. It doesn't mean forgetting the wrong. It does not mean that there are no consequences left for whatever happened. It does not mean that we eliminate the consequences. You can forgive and still long for justice. Those two things are in different categories. The nation of Israel is forgiven by God for their lack of faith and, and willingness to follow him into the promised land. They're forgiven by God, Numbers chapter 14, but they still don't get to enter the promised land. The consequences of their decisions remain. And for people that have wronged you or people that you have wronged, you may have to live with the consequences. You probably will, but that does not mean that you are not and cannot be forgiven. Okay, finally, what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not reconciliation with the wrongdoer. Forgiveness does not, when you forgive somebody, it does not mean you're holding hands, singing kumbaya around the fire, okay? It does not mean that. You may be forever permanently estranged from whomever you need forgiveness from and whoever you need to forgive. Forgiveness takes one person, 
you. Forgiveness takes you. Reconciliation takes two people. You and whoever has wronged you. And in order for there to be reconciliation, somebody needs to look in the mirror and say, I was wrong. That one's on me, and I'm not going to make excuses, and I'm not going to rationalize it, and I'm not going to run from it, and I'm not going to hide from it. I'm going to look in the mirror, and I'm going to own it. That was on me, and it demands repentance and a turning back. And even then, it may take years and years and years and years and great boundaries in order to come to a place of reconciliation. Okay, so please don't come out of here saying, well, Paulson says that in order to forgive, we need to reconcile. And so you call up somebody who's been horribly abusive to you over the years and think that you need to make amends with them. You can make amends with them in your heart and not make that phone call. Okay? Reconciliation does not equal forgiveness. So then we have to ask, what does, what does forgiveness mean? Here's what forgiveness means. Forgiveness means that we release people from the debt that they owe, and we absorb the wrong. Okay, so in the story of this king, who pays the $2.25 billion debt that the servant owed the king? Who pays it? The king. The king. In the same story, who is intended to pay the $4,000 debt that the one servant owed the other? The servant. And that's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is saying, I am not holding that over your head anymore. And here's the beautiful thing about that, you guys. Let's just, let's just play this through for a second. The things that people have done, the wrongs that they've perpetrated against you, how could they pay you back for them anyway? I mean, the things that people have said that are just seared in your brain, they, they can't, they're not finding a DeLorean any sooner than you are. They can't turn back time and go back and say, listen, I really will, I'm not going to say that. And you know and I know that saying sorry goes so far, but it doesn't go far enough because they can't take back the things that they've said. So we're hoping for something and longing for something that's impossible. And Jesus wants to free the human soul. Forgiveness releases people from the debt. They go, all right, you don't, you don't owe me that anymore. I'm out of the bookkeeping business. Praise the Lord, because I stink at math anyway. I'm out of the bookkeeping business. You don't owe me any more than I owe God. That's what forgiveness is. Secondly, forgiveness is a ceasing of the cycle of retributive violence. And it's an entrusting of justice to God. Miroslav Volf in that same book talks about the reality that in the Bosnian-Serbian genocide, the only way that anybody could offer true forgiveness is believing that God would make the world to rights. That he would bring about justice. And that was the hope. That was the thing that people clung on to and allowed them to move forward. Forgiveness is a letting go of my right to hurt another person because they've hurt me, writes Stephen Tracy. That's what it is. It's I'm not playing the tape over in my mind of if I could talk to them again, here's what I'd say. And if I got to meet them wherever, here's what I would say and here's what I would do. Forgiveness is a saying, God, you're going to make this right in your time, in your way. And forgiveness is the penultimate expression of, I, I trust you. 
and taking my hands off of it. There's an old Chinese proverb that says, for lack of forgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting someone else to die. Forgiveness is refusing, refusing to give the devil a foothold in our life. You know that the enemy loves the fact that you replay in your mind what you would do if you had the chance to do it to that person, fill in the blank. Loves it. See, forgiveness is a fight for our joy, friends. It's a fight to say back to the enemy, I know you want darkness to have a foothold in my life. And by replaying these things and hoping that I can get revenge for them, that's what goes on. And the gospel says back and the love of Jesus says back, because I'm freely forgiven, I will freely forgive enemy. You have no place in my heart and in my soul. I am not carrying bitterness. I'm not carrying the weight of that around my neck. I'm not carrying anger anymore. I am forgiven. Therefore, I will freely forgive. It's a fight for our own joy. I am not drinking the poison anymore. I'm not drinking the poison anymore. And here's the other thing it does. Forgiveness fights to see the humanity even in the people that wrong us deeply. So I'm not going to dehumanize because I've been hurt, which is so much of our natural tendency. I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight to see the image of God even in the people that have wronged me deeply. I'm not giving the devil a foothold. How about you? How about you? Okay. So three secrets to forgiveness, and then I'm going to land the plane. Okay. How do we do this? How do we offer forgiveness? First, your greatest resource for forgiveness is the gospel. Remember that you have been deeply forgiven, slate wiped clean, records no longer being kept, completely released and sent away by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Somebody say amen. And when I have trouble forgiving the other, I just need to remember for a moment, I am he. I am he. And God has graciously and freely forgiven me. Secondly, secondly, Forgiveness is a choice before it's a feeling. I hope this brings some freedom for some people in this room today. We're going, I don't feel like forgiving. And you may never feel like forgiving, but you have to decide, are your feelings going to dictate your life or are what you know to be true going to dictate your life? Because you can forgive somebody before you feel like you want to forgive them. Finally. Forgiveness is not a one-time decision. It's an active daily choice. And if you've ever had somebody that's wronged you deeply, you know this. You know this, that you can choose to forgive them and genuinely mean it and then find yourself carrying the weight of the wrong in a day or a week or, hey, maybe you're not quite as spiritual as me. Maybe five minutes, I've done that five minutes later. I'm still carrying the weight of it. And what we need to remember is forgiveness is active. It's saying whenever I find myself carrying the weight of the wrong, I'm going to shed it. That's not who I am anymore. I'm not in the record-keeping business. I've released the records. God has released the records against me, and I've released them against 
anybody who wrongs me, regardless of what the wrong is. There's no footnote. Look up at me for a second. I understand that it's hard. I understand that it feels like it's wrong, like they should have to pay for what they did. And here's the thing, you can keep holding on to that and it will keep killing you and keep haunting you. Or you can remember that Jesus is not in the record-keeping business anymore and you don't need to be either. He will make it right. Our job is to trust him and to live in the path that he's purchased for us. Would you close your eyes and let's go to the Lord in prayer. So that's a lot to take in. So who popped into your mind? What situation when you found out that this is what we were talking about today? Maybe an ex-husband, ex-wife. Maybe a person who abused you, wronged you. Maybe somebody who you did that to. And I just want you to imagine in your mind's eye Jesus with the books and all the things that you've ever done. Maybe the shame that you carry, the guilt that you have, the regrets that if you could go back and take them back, you would. And I just want you to imagine him going to the cross carrying those things. He's canceled the debt. He's obliterated it by his cross because of his love. And he's made a new way for you a new way for you to move forward and to live without the bitterness, without the anger, without the shame, without the regret. You see, the same thing that keeps us from saying we forgive others is the very thing that prevents us from hearing God's forgiveness over our life. You show me somebody who's a forgiver and I will show you somebody who knows that they've been forgiven. Jesus today. We, we all have lists of some sort in our head, and we just want to say that we are handing those over today. Lord, we want to get out of the bookkeeping business. The people that have wronged us, we want to make that daily choice to say we forgive. Whenever we find ourselves carrying the weight of it, we want to remember that you've already expunged it, that it's over, that it is done with. We want to live in that type of freedom. And Jesus, as we live in the freedom that you have so graciously offered to us, would you help us in turn be people who graciously offer the freedom of forgiveness to others? Lord, help us live in your way, with your heart, with your freedom. So Father, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Go knowing that you are freely forgiven and therefore go as a freed forgiver. Stop drinking the poison. It's not helping you. 
and it's not solving the problem. Walk in the freedom that Jesus has purchased for you. We love you. If we can pray with or for you, our elders, our prayer team will be up front. We would count that a joy. If you're not going to be with us next week to pick up a little devotional for Holy Week, please stop by the welcome desk on your way out. We love you, South Fellowship Church. Go as freed forgivers in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. We love you. We'll see you next Sunday. God bless you.